you grew up in a place called Cahors. I was born in Cahors and uh, I was raised in Avignon. Avignon, right. Yes, in the south of France. My geography is bad. Uh, is that far from Cahors? Yes, it's quite far. But in both places, you have a very nice nature, very wild places where you can listen to sounds of birds or to rivers, to storms and everything. And I was raised uh, in this uh, kind of um, environment. And uh, I think it had a huge impact on my future work or my wish of working as a composer. I think everything is music if you listen to it in a certain way. When I, um, I lived in Avignon with my parents, almost every week we went to see some friends which were in a very wild place. And um, with all the children, we slept outside in a tent or sometimes uh, straight uh, under the moon. And, uh, and when you, are, you live in these kind of places, where we could listen to wolves at night or holes, a lot of different birds, and you can listen to the rain under the tent. And all these things, you are aware that sound is a miracle. And then music sometimes is less interactive, less uh, impressive than uh, listening closely to what is around you. So uh, it's two ways of listening, and they can mix together. But uh, definitely, I love to do some field recording and uh, I'm preparing for next year some works which will be recorded straight in the nature where, where I will play instruments, but uh, I will choose the place where to play so that uh, what we hear in the field recording will mix with the music. I want to ask more about those projects a little bit later because otherwise I'm afraid I will stray from this early stage. <laughs> uh, forgive me if I misrepresent this. Um, I want to hear it in your words, of course. You started studying music formally, then rebelled against some aspects of it and then ended up coming back to it in a more formal way. In between, you had a time where you were away from any music schools and were playing in rock bands and uh, doing your own thing. And then you went back. And uh, could you describe that process? And um, I'm also interested in this because I like to hear about the difficult times. And it's especially helpful, I think, for other creative artists or people who have those kinds of needs to create to hear how something was difficult to find the path and get onto it. 
or did you find it difficult or was it just kind of a twisty path but enjoyable at the time? Making music, learning about music has always been uh, very, very interesting for me. Uh, what was more difficult is to make a living out of it. I think this is the main problem nowadays and maybe uh, even before, but nowadays I think it's very difficult for a lot of reasons to make a living out of music. But you asked me about uh, when I went to music school when I was very young and then I stopped. I stopped because it was boring for me. The kind of magic that I could find in composing, in playing music, I could not find it at the school. We had to learn things from a teacher which was uh, in front of us, especially in solfeggio. It was very boring. And uh, I didn't want to go there because I love so much music that uh, I wanted to do it my own way. I think it was a good idea. But uh, also when I wanted to compose for orchestra, for example, I felt that I had not enough knowledge. So I went back to school, but then I knew I had a strong sense of what I wanted to do in music. And uh, I had also the luck to find some very good teachers who uh, helped me to find my own path and not do it uh, the regular way, if a regular exists. It's funny how when you want to express your own voice, you have to be different from other ones. But when you are different from other ones, then it's a difficult uh, difficulty because sometimes people tell you that it's not the right way to do things or you should do another way. Uh, so uh, you talked about future musicians who would like to go further. It's important to be confident in what you are doing, even if it's different from the others and maybe especially if it's different. I also wanted to ask you this same question that I asked David Lee Home. How much do you value independent study and just doing the work? I think uh, what you learn by yourself is the best way to learn. It's very interesting to learn from schools. In fact, you don't learn from schools. You learn from someone who is teaching you. And this person happens to teach in a school. But in fact, it depends on who you meet and people that can help you. Uh, are very important, but they can help you face to face or maybe through Skype or in YouTube or in a book. Also, I read a lot of books and I learn a lot of things by myself in books. So I would say that the most important to me is pleasure in learning, pleasure in doing, making mistakes, do it again and finally finding something which appeals to you. And learning by uh, your own is not uh, learning alone. Because even if you learn by yourself, you listen to music of other people, you read books from other people. So there is always a kind of interaction between us and the rest of the world and people who did it well uh, before us. Yes, that was a very important addition, actually. And thank you for making that because, I mean, I could not have learned anything without other people. But in my case, the contact was through books and films and TV and uh, Uh, everything else. So it was learning from other people all along. And um, one of the things that I return to as a theme on this podcast are these people who can impart things in that way about creativity uh, or about life in general, who can give what I like to call keys to creativity or, you know, you find someone saying something that just unlocks some puzzle and then you realize, oh, that's how I need to do this. 
among these people that I have learned from from a very great distance have been people like David Lynch, for example. And he's very good at saying just enough, but not too much, where it would become this kind of prescriptive, like many screenwriting gurus, they give you a very specific set of steps you need to include in a screenplay. And I think that's too much. Whereas uh, David Lynch has a skill for saying just enough that then you can find your own way to proceed based on that and without telling you what to do or even what kind of story to do he leaves that completely up to you so he doesn't ask anyone or suggest that they should do the kind of thing he does but rather their own thing he talks about the ways of getting there like how to get ideas and at least the things that have worked for him i think it's uh, the difference between principles and rules principles may be always true and rules are local. They work for someone in certain circumstances, but for other people or other projects, they don't work. That's well put. And that reminded me immediately of John Cage and his book, Silence, and the things that he has said, just mentioning for the benefit of listeners, that John Cage was an American composer, very innovative, very experimental a unique individual and he also wrote books and uh, he wrote a book called Silence and I found that so helpful because it gave the most basic rules about what music is and I had never seen it expressed that simply. He reduced it to just the essentials that sound is something that starts, has a certain pitch or many pitches or not an identifiable pitch necessarily, then it ends and it has volume, it's of a certain loudness or softness, and that's pretty much it. That's the most basic definition of what a sound is. And music is several sounds like that happening in different combinations. And that was really helpful for me because he wasn't saying anything about how you need to combine the sounds. He left the field wide open after that, and of course he didn't define any sound as non-musical. What you said, what I meant to say is, is that that's a great way to put it that principles are helpful, but rules can be restrictive. Yes, and I'm very close to what he said about sound and facts. Then everything else is up to you, the composer, to mix in a certain way the sounds, to make some silence, to make everything you want. But a sound is described by a certain number of parameters, and these parameters, the way you combine them, it's your job to do it.
I should not uh, talk more about David Lynch, but uh, I want to add this because it seems to connect with what we were saying. Um, when he learned uh, screenwriting from a teacher whose name, unfortunately, now I don't remember, but he learned a very uh, simple way to write a script. And uh, the way he puts it was that you take 70 index cards, fill them with ideas, and by the time you have 70, you have a movie. <laughs> to me, that's great because it gives complete freedom and you can see what works instead of following this Hollywood formula that makes so many films so similar in feel because they are actually following the exact same structure laid by some of these uh, screenwriting teachers. Yes. Also in Hollywood, there is the, um, the hero's journey. And this is an example of what principled could be becomes a kind of rule. And in Hollywood movies, you always have this hero's journey for the main character and sometimes all the characters. You even have some tools to follow if your character has passed every uh, step of the journey. And I don't like this way of working because this is too much of a constraint. I agree. And uh, the same goes for me also for music because I find that it's so refreshing when music can take me by surprise and take a sudden turn to something that's not necessarily growing out of what went before. So, for example, the music might be going one way and suddenly there's a really delightful change to something and it can happen just like that, like a sudden rainstorm coming without going through something that's kind of predetermined by some logic that was laid down by theorists or earlier composers a long time ago. Yes, I agree. You said everything. <laughs> Thank you. Maybe my liking for this has been influenced by the time I was born into because I experienced such abrupt shifts in music with games, for example, uh, which is something that wouldn't have happened so much when in earlier decades there were films, for example, or symphonies or anything else. It was more of a piece, whereas with games you often had a little bit that could be funny and then another completely different type of piece of music in it. Or uh, speaking of even more sophisticated games like the Atlantis series, uh, you could move from one environment to another and there was a shift in mood that was delightful to experience. And uh, that could have been done in a way that would morph slowly between the scenes. But I think it's actually sometimes really refreshing to just have a strong change in mood. Yes, and also this is possible in video games because it's an interactive media. So you can jump from a place to another place and everything that goes in the various places changes immediately, which is not possible in linear music or linear storytelling. So I think also video games introduced this kind of surprises uh, that you may uh, experience. Yeah, it's a really interesting territory. I was going to mention David Lynch, I'm sorry, once again. He did the third season of Twin Peaks in a very, you could say, disjointed way. The scenes and characters, you, you could never predict what the next one was going to be about. I found that really just a delightful experience. And um, it seemed like um, he was creating almost a new way to tell a story that way. But sorry, I should not keep bringing up his work. 
Uh, no, it's okay for me because uh, I like, uh, I enjoy very much David Lynch's uh, work. So it's uh, also an inspiration to me. So you can talk about him. That gives me an opening. And I want to ask something that may be a very easy question. But I like to ask it of people because these kinds of things uh, can tell a lot and maybe reveal also sides of people that are not necessarily so easily perceivable from their work. Uh, you mentioned that you do a lot of reading. What kinds of books do you enjoy? And uh, I would like to ask the same question about uh, movies and TV. In fact, I have a, a lot of influences that uh, may differ one from another. So, for example, right now, I'm reading the books of Edward Bernays, which was uh, one of the big influencers of the world we live in today, which is not very well known. He invented the rules of propaganda, all the propaganda which is used today by governments, by um, companies. He invented a lot of them. It's very intriguing to me that this kind of dark people, because I find him dark, uh, have influenced the world. So this is a kind of book I'm reading right now. And I made also a movie, a small movie about this, an art piece, which is called Propaganda too. Now I'm reading Chomsky, which is the other someone who uh, talks about this, all these kinds of propaganda and how the world works. But I'm reading also poetry, technical things. Now I'm reading a book from Janine Benius, who is one of the founders of the biomimicry, which explains uh, how nature can be an inspiration for people through various ways of conceiving it. For movies, I like uh, Ken Loach, for example, uh, Lars von Trier, a lot of them, and also some Hollywood movies too. Have you seen, I would guess that you have, but I don't want to assume, Koyani Skatsi? Yes, it was a huge inspiration to me. And uh, also Baraka and uh, the other movies he made. And uh, when I saw this, it was a revelation because it was exactly what I was feeling. When I discovered uh, Koyani Skatsi, I loved the fact that it had only pictures and music. It was very meaningful. Although you could say it's only pictures and music, no, there is a story through it. And this story is told without word. So the listener, viewer, has a lot of ways to make his own links between all this. You said it was a revelation to you. And when I first saw it, it left me feeling such a mix of emotions that I felt like I was literally floating on a cloud, a spiritual experience, really. It blew away my ideas about 
what film could do, image and sound happening together. And of course, I'm really fascinated also about the background of that and how it happened in the documentaries. Godfrey Reggio, the director, and Philip Glass, the composer, they talk about how it became a really two-way collaboration where Philip Glass would compose music to a scene that he saw or a cut he saw that was edited together a certain way and then the director would have it recut to work even better with the music. It became a really intuitive thing where it went back and forth like this so it wasn't only seeing a film then composing the music or the other way around but actually a collaboration happening over a long period of time. I think they did that for years of combining and reinventing it until it became that final result. Yes, when you work in a team, it's very interesting to really have exchanges with people. And uh, it's not because you are making the music that you cannot have an idea or propositions for, um, for the pictures or for the script or even the interactivity in a video game. We were lucky enough to be able to do this in the first Atlantis video games. And I think people feel this because it's not a work being done alone by some kind of artists. There is um, a kind of interaction between all of them and uh, informations passed between uh, all of us. For example, sometimes I ask the programmer to do something special to have a kind of generative or pseudo-generative music and that I could mix some waves together to, to avoid uh, boring the listener, for example. I think it succeeded marvelously. With some games, you can tell that it wasn't coordinated as deeply as with Atlantis, for example. So I think all that effort was so worthwhile. In fact, it was not really an effort. It was a joy because it's very enjoyable to work with people, to have ideas, to share um, ideas for a common goal. So it's not a really an effort. It's work, but it's not an effort in the sense that it's hard to do. It's more easy to play, to enjoy things. And if you work uh, 20 hours a day, it's not a problem. But you're happy to do this. You are right, of course. And actually, I should have described that as an effort by the people who are maybe just struggling to get through a day's work instead of approaching it as artists. Uh, I also I like um, hearing about how much you enjoy uh, collaborations like that. The work of a composer is often a lonely way, but I like when I meet other people which are involved in other arts like people working in photography or videography or programming. And uh, in this sense, I like collaboration. It's more difficult to collaborate with another composer or you have to be in a, in a kind of improvisation act. For example, in Atlantis, I did this also with Stefan Pick for the first episode of Atlantis. And uh, we had this kind of collaboration we decided to have some tracks that we would do on uh, our own and uh, other tracks that we would do together. Stefan Pick, of course, is also someone I admire a lot. His music was... He, he was even able to do music with sound cards, really pleasurable to listen to when many other composers couldn't. So, for example, he did the soundtrack for Creo's Dune game, which was a mix of strategy and adventure game and... Uh, 
even though it's uh, played through a sound card, he was able to get everything out of that technology. Uh, working with, uh, with sound cards was um, a part of the history of video games. And it was very interesting to have this kind of constraint because the music didn't sound the same if you changed the cards. And uh, you had to try your music on various cards. And uh, you, you hoped that it would be uh, well played for the players. At the time of Atlantis, we were lucky enough to be able to record things. This was a huge step for composer to be able to use all kinds of instruments, which is what I did uh, for all the Atlantis series. I wanted to ask about your collaboration also. At that time, you already had, I believe, quite a sizable collection of instruments. So the instruments we hear that were actual instead of virtual on those soundtracks, were they all from your collection? or? Yes, I began collecting instruments years before Atlantis. And for Atlantis, I even bought some instruments I thought were useful for the game in various places. So I went to Ireland, I went also to Turkey, to Indonesia, to learn some music, to learn also for masters uh, how to play the instruments and so on. And uh, I bought some of the instruments. So, for example, the flutes you are listening in Atlantis, they come from uh, almost uh, every continent, and I had to learn how to play them. The male voices that we hear, are they you and or Stefan on the Atlantis soundtracks? I've assumed it's you mostly. Yes, for the male voices, it's me. And for the female voices, there are, I think, two singers, Alisa and Gael, which sang on the album. And for the voices, there are some kind of choirs that I did, for example, for Sunriders. I recorded myself several times. I don't remember exactly how much, but perhaps 50 times to have a massive choir. And I used this technique a lot in video games because I enjoy a lot choirs. And we didn't have the budget to hire a choir. And so I did everything myself, which was a very good thing because then you can master exactly what you want and you can work on BPMs. You can do remixes of the voice. So mixing, sampling and live singing is very interesting. 
Yes, the results are marvelous. And uh, you, of course, also studied singing, conducting, of course, composing. And uh, I may be still forgetting other things, but singing was something you had good practice in already. I wanted to quickly mention before I forget, uh, yes, Alyssa Landry and Gael Zidian. Exact. Yes, they were a very important part of the cast for the music because, as you know, in Atlantis, there was this male-female ancient and uh, new world that was uh, involved in the storytelling. And I wanted to illustrate this with voices. And uh, both of the girls had a special role in the music. And uh, I mainly did all the male voices. Is one of the two female singers you just mentioned also in Raya's Garden in Atlantis 2? Yes. Alisa is a very good singer and a very good friend. I love her timbre and the way she can understand what I am asking her as a composer. You mentioned the end of the second Atlantis game and uh, how beautifully it brings together the male-female theme that has been running through it. I actually played it for the first time with someone else and uh, after the ending was over, we both agreed that that was the most beautiful ending to any game we have seen. Thank you. I wanted to still ask about that final scene's music, whether I'm hearing it accurately or if I'm uh, misinterpreting something. We are in a new world, you can say. There's two characters coming together and... um, Does it happen in the music the way I hear it or believe it to be that there's two different flute melodies that intertwine or is it the same flute double-tracked or...? No, it's two flutes that interact.
when I listen to it later and I try to understand why it was so completely beautifully fitting, I think that was a great idea to do it that way. Thank you. This links to what you said previously about David Lynch. There are some invisible links between things that music can reveal. In this case, what I wanted to express is what you, you mentioned. It really works amazingly and uh, also has the beautiful primal quality of being in a new and fresh world and having a new start which is a very special mood that I find in very rare pieces of music. So it worked super well for me. I like to think about uh, utopias or new worlds. It's something I'm uh, very fond of. And in Atlantis, we had the possibility to express this kind of situations. It seemed like a lot of thought had been given to making it a really aesthetically pleasing place to live, that you could actually live there. What was impressive about the architecture was that the visual designers of that game, they actually did the work of architects. All of those buildings would work and the city was well designed and you could walk around and everything. Yes. In Atlantis, what works very well is that all the island, the buildings, the forests, the people, the way they are dressed, it makes a full ecosystem where everything works together. And uh, it's not that usual in video games that you have this, uh, all this work and this precision in the work. And what is true for the buildings is also true for the vessels, these kind of ships which are flying in the sky. And they are very important in the game and how they behave, what kind of energy drives them. All this was also very interesting to make. Yes, they are one of the most beautiful designs of any type of vessel. If I could choose one uh, way to move around in this world, it would be that kind of flying ship. Yes. Preferably with that music also. <laughs> and talking about music, it was a challenge for me having all these buildings, uh, hot pieces, vessels. I had to do a music that could be also like the real music of Atlantis if it would have existed. So I had a lot of work in choosing the instruments, why I choose certain instruments and others. For example, when you are flying, I used mostly flutes because I think they reveal the light part of the music. And um, I also used instruments, very ancient instruments used by Pythagore, for example, like the canon, which canon means the rule, the way of measuring things. And so it was very interesting for me to discover all these instruments through the making of the soundtrack of Atlantis.
I learned so much about music from all places and also ancient music by doing the soundtrack. It was the time where I learned the more about music from other countries. Was that the project where you would have been using more of your instrument collection than ever before? What do you say? Yes, I think in Atlantis, in all the Atlantis series, I used a lot of instruments. And sometimes when I thought I was missing some kind of, of sound, I searched the web and sometimes I went to visit uh, music makers, uh, instrument makers that could help me to find the correct uh, instruments I, I was searching for. to get to particular projects now you already mentioned uh, propaganda and um, earlier this summer if i'm permitted to say uh, you were in uh, some caves re doing some recordings in southern france um, and that's related to a project you're doing could you talk about that one that's a really interesting one for me also to hear about um, again recording in natural settings using the places themselves musically and for sound. Yes, the work you are talking about is called Stalactica. It's an album I have prepared for, for years and years. I'm recording music that I'm composing and recording in a cave. This cave is in the south of France and it's called Isturitz. 
the Oxochelaya, which are very interesting caves which have been uh, inhabited by humans for thousands of years and where uh, was found one of the most beautiful collection of um, prehistoric flutes made out of bones. And uh, in this cave, I'm composing an album, but not only an album, I already composed music for the cave, uh, which is played within the caves in several places. And I play on the concretions of the caves, which means stalagmites, stalactites. And for this, I went for several years to listen carefully to all the sounds of the concretions so that I could compose something. And now I'm ready for this. So I'm spending uh, four months there to record and not only record to make photographies a movie also an art movie about the caves it's a fantastic place and i hope the result will be interesting is this connected to the made in series is it part of that or separate at the beginning it was supposed to be part of the made in series included in the stone project so i was considering the stalactites the stalagmites as lithophones, it means uh, stones where you can play sounds. But I found the cave so a fascinating place that I decided to do a separate album for the cave and uh, leave the other um, lithophones for the stone album. So it will be a separate project. We've just mentioned Made In. Uh, that's a series that started with uh, bamboo and then metal. Can you describe that project and uh, where it's going also? Yes, the Made In series is a, a series of uh, albums where I take only one matter at a time and I build instruments or sometimes I get instruments already made. So for bamboo, I use flute bamboos, percussion bamboo and so on. But I also made some instruments out of bamboo. For metal, I did the same. And for stone, I made all the instruments because it's very difficult to find lithophones. So I began collecting stones from various places in France and Europe. And I ended with a collection of instruments I made. So it took me a, a lot of time to do this. And, uh, and now they are ready and I recorded several pieces with uh, them. And it's a mix of acoustic instruments and also augmented instruments where I uh, take the sound of some stones, I pass them through effects or computer programs I do, and then you have this music that I can play live, which mixes acoustic, electronic, and computer music. The idea behind the Made In series was to have as many senses dealing with, uh, with this matter. So you could listen to it, you could see it, and you could even touch the bamboo with the box made out of bamboo. I did the same with metal and the same with stone, and I will carry on with the other albums. Thank you. 
uh, speaking of stone, uh, there was something I uh, I was just reminded of it. It concerns the longevity of art because so many pieces of work will simply perish because they are on materials that don't last. Paper rots, paintings deteriorate, and of course they are reproduced digitally. But I realized that if somebody was really concerned primarily to make really long-lasting works of art, doing something out of stone would be a good bet. Yes, you're right. For example, in the cave, the sound which I am playing on the stalagmites is the same. They are tuned the same way that prehistoric people could have listened to. And there is a place in the cave where you have two stalactites and one is left untouched and the other one has been cut down to make a perfect fifth and scientifics found out that uh, the cat was made more than 10,000 years ago. So someone went in the cave, found two stalactites and cut one to make a perfect fifth. And this lasted until now. That's amazing. And yeah, it must have been for that musical reason. Sure, because the fifth is in our voice and with everything we, we hear around. So it's an interval that we have integrated as humans. So it's not by chance that someone did this. Right. And speaking of caves, another form of really long-lasting art is, of course, cave paintings, some of which have survived to this day from thousands and thousands of years ago. It's amazing that they lasted this long. They used materials that didn't, for example, just disappear, crumble off the wall or something. Of course, a lot of them has uh, gone, but there are all these really elegant drawings that still exist. I love those early cave paintings. A picture of a horse feels like a horse, and at that very early stage, they were able to capture the essence of things visually so well. Yes, you're right. And in the caves of Isturitz, where I'm working, there are paintings of horses and also engravings of animals straight in the stone. And uh, when you come close to them with a small light, and uh, especially if it's fire, then they animate like in a movie. So some people say that cinema was invented in caves. Oh yeah, I've read about that. And uh, that's really an interesting thing to think about how in that time they may not even have had words for what they were doing but they were still doing it that they felt this impulse to of course they had some kind of communication but um certainly not an analytical theory of art or anything like that i assume well some people point to possible functional uses for this like to aid um hunter for example first imagine killing some animal and drawing it that way or or seeing it drawn that way and then going to do the actual act but my own feeling at least is that it must have been largely the same impulse to do art and uh, interesting engaging things that don't need to have a specific functional practical purpose Regarding the hunting thing you talked about, now we, we know that some drawings we thought were a bow for hunting were not bows for hunting but for music because you can play, you can have a, an arc to play music, a uh, mouth arc, I think you say in English. And uh, some drawings that were interpreted as hunting scenes were more like communicating with the animals. 
and having the animals being like uh, spirits or like a kind of inspiration for the people as you find uh, nowadays in shamanic uh, things. Uh, and when you go in the cave and that you see the drawings, I had this feeling that it's more being in connection with the spirit of the animals. And in Atlantis, I used several titles, spirit of this or spirit of that. And when I went in the cave, I found how connected you can be with your environment when you stay a long time in it. That's an interesting point you bring up about how it's better to uh, keep an open mind about, for example, these cave paintings, what they mean. Maybe some scientists or researchers or ethnologists have formed their own impression and then written it down in a book. And it may have come across as a factual statement, but uh, these days our views may have changed and it's possible to interpret in different ways. And like, for example, what you were talking about, that it's more about communing or feeling a connection to the animals rather than this is hunter, this is an animal, and one is going to kill the other. It's also simplistic to see it that way because it assumes that they were only concerned with getting food and killing the animal for that reason, whereas they may have had great respect uh, for the whole system they were part of. And so there may have been all these spiritual levels that fortunately people are becoming more aware of now. Sure. And if you experience staying for some days or some weeks within a forest or a wild place, you discover that your main concern is not to find food or things like that. You spend a lot of time in doing nothing or being connected to the place or to what you listen. It's fascinating. And you're not always searching for an animal to kill it, to have food, like you go in a supermarket to buy your food. Or <laughs> It's a very material way of thinking uh, that maybe some people have projected on the paintings of caves. And what I am saying is not only a personal thought. A lot of scientists have changed their mind on the drawings, paintings, and so on. And it's not more casual things, but perhaps more uh, spiritual. Or There may be various ways of considering these paintings.
it's uh, something that I hope will also increase the respect that people in general have for these some of our oldest artworks. I don't know how many people these days would say primitive art in a judgmental way. It might be from an early time, but in my opinion, it is definitely elegant and expressive more so than some very detailed uh, medieval paintings, for example. They might have technical skill and detail and all that, but I don't mean to be judgmental about them. They serve their own uh, purposes and the artists had different aims. But for example, a picture of a horse in some medieval painting wouldn't feel as much a horse to me as one of those early cave paintings. So they really were high level artists. Exactly. And for the horses, they used also the shape of the walls. The walls are not flat. You have some surface and uh, they use this surface to make a part of the animal. So these paintings have a lot of relief by using the shape of the wall. And uh, you must be deeply connected to your subject, to the animal, to the cave, to the pigments you are using to achieve such a great result. A lot of artists nowadays would not be able to do the same. You give them a surface of a wall and some old pigments you have to find in the nature. And uh, maybe I'm not sure the result would be so great that in certain caves. That's a great point, and I wasn't aware of that aspect of it, that even the place a horse would be drawn would be chosen because it was the right place. It's um, amazing to think that they were intuiting or consciously making those decisions about, first they get the impulse, I want to depict a horse, and where uh, there's the right place for the horse. So it's very sophisticated. Yes, very sophisticated. And even the places where drawings are, is uh, there are scientists who think that the places are chosen by the sound. When you go in a cave, uh, imagine you don't have the light, you have nothing. The way to walk in the cave is with sound. You make and you listen to the cave. And then you understand if there is a hole, if there is a wall near you and so on. And uh, in the caves of Isturitz, there are a lot of red points which are on the walls. And someone studied that these red paintings are on the places where there is a maximum of resonance or a minimum of resonance. So it's very fascinating to discover that sound lead the people of that time to a certain place to make a drawing. And uh, there are experiences where, for example, you had calcite, which had covered uh, the wall. And the scientist who did this, his name is Yegor Resnikov, he said, behind this, because of the resonance, I think there is a drawing. And effectively, there was a drawing. Because when you are in the cave, you feel it. When you move, the sound changes, your voice changes, the noise of your footstep changes. And the sound is a very important part of the cave. When uh, imagining uh, these caves, I guess most of us uh, imagine them mostly being silent or just people walking or talking in them in those times. But uh, because the picture is becoming fuller, I know about this much less than you do, but uh, it occurred to me, of course, there might have been music and those caves might have been used for music. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, do you know something about that? Could there have been many types of music even played there? As um, many flutes were found there, more than 20, 
people played music, sure. Which kind of music, where they played the music, this we don't know. But one thing is sure is that the acoustic of the place has a lot of influence on what you do in the place. For example, in Isturitz, there are three levels of caves and uh, the highest level is a huge kind of cathedral where you have between six and seven seconds of reverberation. So you cannot do any kind of music there. And the owner of the cave had uh, very funny uh, stories to tell about that. Sometimes she organizes concerts in the caves. And when artists don't want to come to the cave because they say, no, we are professionals, no problem for us. They come and, for example, they play a very fast music of Mozart or something like that. And it's so disturbing to them that sometimes people fall, they break the instruments. It's, it's very funny because, because in this kind of uh, extraordinary acoustics, you have to do a music that fits the acoustic because there is a link between time and space because of the speed of the sound in air, for example. If you want to reveal the space and reveal the time in this cave, you have to do a composition especially designed for this place. So you play one note, doom, you listen until it finishes, and then you have a tempo which is possible. And other tempi will not work for this special cave. And also the cave has a fundamental. When you, you sing a note, you pass all the frequencies, and there is one frequency which is better for this case because of its dimensions, size, and so on which is the, again in French, uh, la fréquence propre. Every object and uh, every room has a resonant frequency. And if you find this frequency, then you can compose a music in the cave that will resonate at the utmost. And same for the tempo of the piece you compose in the cave. If you listen to the reverberation, then you can find a tempo which is compatible with the cave. music has this quality of always taking into consideration what the environment is and you choose the instruments like you were talking about based on what feels correct for that place. So you don't, for example, just use a traditional symphony orchestra and then add one or two instruments. I can't imagine any of your games, for example, scored that way. They would feel like a travesty because it wouldn't feel like that world. You're right. And uh, it's not only about choosing the instrument for its tradition. For example, using a Chinese instrument for a Chinese situation. This is a little redundant. It's better to... I try to find the spirit of things. I can express it with an acoustic instrument or electric instruments or modular synthesizers. 
the choice of the instrument is not based on uh, objective things. Sometimes it's only the mental connections you make between the instruments, the way of playing the instrument, and what you want to express in the music. There's a connection to something that I want to also try to address. It's a little bit difficult to talk about because people don't, uh, or people can have strong opinions about the terminology, but the idea of world music, which can have several different meanings, but the kind of world music that I, uh, or what I came to see uh, through that term, was music that combines things freely from different cultures. That's something that I found for the first time uh, in my life in your music, uh, where there was musical influences from all over, and they were combining in a harmonious way that made for a whole that was more than the combination of the individual parts. Exactly. This is the way I compose my music. I'm interested in the sound, uh, sometimes in the stories and the cultures which lie underneath these instruments. But I don't want to use them as uh, kind of typical things, uh, folkloric accessories. I like to use these instruments from all over the world for themselves. So sometimes I know about their history or how they are used in their countries. Uh, but the best way for me to have a connection to them is to try them. And uh, if I don't know the stories behind, if I don't know the cultures, then it's sometimes better for me because I can use them in my own way. Before I found your music, I hadn't had this experience of something that embraced the whole world and uh, there was nothing exploitative about it. It wasn't using something like in some old depictions of other cultures in music in the first half of the 20th century, for example, if they wanted to suggest uh, Japan, they would always use this same little bit of melody. And so it was the most superficial thing that didn't express anything of the... There was no respect, first of all, and it didn't have anything to do with the actual place. It didn't express any of the spirit. It's a complete contrast uh, what happens in your music, where the instruments are treated naturally and respectfully, and um, uh, they are from many different cultures, and yet they all fit together very well, which is an embodiment of, of a utopia, of course. Yes, and maybe before people used the instruments and music from other countries in a non-respectful way because maybe their thoughts were more colonialist or imperialist and uh, they thought that real music is classical music, symphonic music and that the other musics may be more folkloric and not essential. Yes, so there was no interest even behind uh, musical references like that. For the sake of fairness, it should be mentioned that uh, it was very difficult to hear authentic music from other parts of the world until about the 50s. The world hadn't yet opened up until that point, so uh, I shouldn't be too unfair to composers before that time. Yes, but some composers had already this intuition that music is not only Western music. For example, composers like Bela Bartok were influenced by uh, the music of their culture. And uh, he went into places in his country, recorded music, and made one of the first scientific research about music. 
Right, and I think also Debussy heard the gamelan, Japanese gamelan at some point, and was really impressed by it. Yes, he heard the gamelan in a world fair in Paris. Right, so whenever a composer of any open-mindedness uh, was able to hear these sounds, it seemed to always have a big impact on them. And, um, well, this is an, an example of an, another culture, but a new instrument being introduced, a new instrumental color being added to the world. Tchaikovsky was the first to feature the Celeste, and um, he made sure that nobody else got there first before his dance of the sugar plum fairy from the nutcracker uh, because it was a new instrument and uh, so he had to make sure that somebody didn't get something important featuring the celeste out there he was keen to have that be heard with that piece of music first <laughs> yes a real businessman <laughs> yes <laughs> Do you think that some of our music will survive and be appreciated not only by some scholars, but by people just, just as easily without knowing any theory about it? One of the big difficulties of having so much music composed, played, recorded, is that nobody can listen to it in a lifespan. So I think today, if a young people would want to listen to music all day long, he or she could not listen to everything which was created. So one of the problems of having all these digital things is how do you find the right music? So this is a problem which um, seems to be addressed uh, by uh, algorithms or, or search engines. But as we can see, these are not good solutions because they are solutions proposed by the GAFAM of the people who have the power of choosing which music or which culture or which uh, books will pass to the next generations. So I think that there is a political problem to this more than a technical or philosophic um, problem.
music appreciation changes all the time. Music is not only what is emitted, it's also how people who receive this music will understand it. Which are the parameters that they involve in their listening? For example, with the cave, with the fifth on two stalactites, only someone who knows what the fifth is can understand how impressive it is to have this testimony of the past. So education of the people is key for understanding music or receiving music because instinct is one thing, but also education has a major role in understanding something. Would you make some exceptions to that in the case of, for example, if we think of a Gregorian chant, for example, that's now very old and simple songs like Green Sleeves or the Scarborough Affair, do you think those will live on or fall away at some point? For these songs, they are much rooted in our Western culture. Sometimes they have a link to religion, even or spirituality. And if people who listen to them don't have this kind of links, they may not like this music. This is already the case. For example, when I play some instruments, people tell me that you are out of tune. This is not the correct pitch. You have to tune your instrument. In fact, not. This is another way of tuning the instrument. And for the stones, for the lithophones, for the stalactites in the cave, I take whichever sound is here. So sometimes our cultural background leads us to have some points of view which are very narrow-minded. Maybe the fact of using, of building my own instruments, for example, for, with stone, helps for this because they are not rooted in a special time and place and uh, may have been used all along uh, human history. And uh, in that sense, maybe some musics may be as universal as a horse painted on the wall of a cave. Right. I was also, even before you mentioned that, I was thinking of that connection of uh, how much being clear and elegant, how that may be one very important factor in longevity. Because also with language, certain works of written art they have very little chance of surviving because they were written in language that's so of their own time. Like it used to be very common for philosophy books and also novels to be written in a highly convoluted style, long sentences with lots of commas and then side observations and so on and walls of text. Whereas something that's very simply and elegantly written that also... Uh, respects negative space that doesn't fill everything in that has uh, I think uh, long-lasting quality if the work itself is worth anything of course the words have to be worth something but I'm fascinated by musicians and artists of every type who have made this discovery that simplicity can communicate more than high complexity it can leave room for more and it can of course, embrace a larger audience. Ray Bradbury, for example, wrote in a language with many of his stories that still hasn't dated because he carefully chose his words to use the most simple and therefore also the most poetic words. There's nothing that has dated in them. He, he avoided carefully using slang of the time. And um, like there's a short story called The Lake. And... Um, its language hasn't actually dated at all, whereas many other writers have kind of limited their own 
longevity by using language that does get old. Yes, it's very interesting what you're saying, because the more I compose, the more I work, the more I leave things. I will compose only for voice, for example, because you have a kind of perfection in voice that can go through time and which can express an infinity of uh, variations, of expressions. So minimalism is one way of going straight to things that can last. Before you mentioned silence, I think that it's important to leave enough space by silence or by slightly moving the tempo of the music uh, so that the listener uh, can have time to build his own uh, music, his own mental images. When you are too much constrained by the BPM of a computer, for example, then you are the slave of this machine. You are forced to synchronize with this beat. Whereas if you play the same beat with people and even with electronic instruments, you have the space to breathe, for the music to breathe. And uh, I think this connection or reconnection to something very organic, even if it is made with electronic or electric instruments, is very important. And I see a lot of new music emerging nowadays which integrate these elements. Then I just want to ask um, the big question, kind of, what impact do you believe that art has in the world? What does art do or what do you hope it can do? 
It's a big question. Firstly, I would say that art is what you send to the people, but more important is how they use it, how they uh, feel it. For example, in your case, you're seeing a lot of uh, nice things that uh, I, I feel when I compose the music. You received this and you are able to translate it into words. But sometimes it's not the case because people are not receptive to this music and so it has no impact or not the same impact as on some people like you. So art is not only what you send, it's also how people receive it and how they use it. I expect that art has a positive impact on people uh, like it has for me because reading, listening to music, watching movies and so on is a way of understanding the world and uh, understanding myself, the others. Maybe I could do this without art, but it helps a lot in my case. But we can say art and music has a very strong impact on people because on the negative way, it has been used by countries to go to war, to uh, manipulate the mind of the people in religions, in advertising and so on. So we can see both in positive and negative ways that music and sound has a very deep impact on people. Up to now, I have uh, worked in the traditional way. I mean, composing music, using it in movies, in video games, selling my albums and so on. But now I feel like I would like to have a different link with uh, the people who listen to my music. For example, by uh, publishing every day or, or every week the music I've recorded. And uh, it may be an improvisation. But I think it's interesting not to be in the usual way of a consumer and producer. So this is one thing which is very important to me. For example, in the cave, I invited some people to listen to my work. And it was very satisfying for everyone and for me also to see what the music in the cave makes to these people. So in the next years, I want to change my way of producing music the way of uh, presenting it to the people in a more collaborative way. When are you happiest? What makes you happy? Love, uh, friends, sometimes something unpredictable. Uh, sometimes the rain is coming or I listen to music I like, I eat good food. A lot of things make me happy in a day. That's a great answer. 
Thank you very much for doing this. I couldn't have been happier with this discussion. I hope that it was a good experience for you as well. Yes, thank you, Simo. It was a very nice time for me to have this discussion with you and also to learn about more about you and your thoughts and that we share a lot of things. Uh, and if you want to come to Paris, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm sure at some point I will. And uh, thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye.